everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, good morning, Discovery Church. Thanks to everyone who is willing to brave the cold weather today. And for those of you who are joining us online, I'm a little jealous. I hope if you're joining us at home that you never changed out of your pajamas and you're drinking hot chocolate, because I think there are some here who probably wish they were doing the same. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Before we get started in our message, I'm excited to share about a cool event we have coming up after second service. Um, About a year and a half, uh, we hired a young man named Daniel uh, to be our student ministry director, uh, which is a near and dear position to my heart. I ran our student ministry here for about 10 years Uh, And in the last year and a half, Daniel has gotten to do some amazing things, and he's done incredible. Uh, Today, after second service, uh, we are ordaining Daniel as a pastor. A discovery has a long process you go through for ordination that involves education, it involves reviews, it involves uh, meetings with our elders, meetings with our staff, references, uh, and Daniel has done amazing with that. Um, For me personally, Uh, I have this cool experience that I have a daughter in our student ministry. And the other week, having my daughter come home and say, man, I just love Daniel. And I love going to church, and I love what he brings. Makes me so excited uh, to get the chance to be at Daniel's ordination. So for anybody who would like to leave after first service and then come back after second service, you are welcome to join us um, as going up on our website. We'll be moving from our student ministry director to our student ministry pastor, Daniel Maxim, um, and he's here in the room, so if you could give him a hand, that would be amazing. Love that guy. He's up there with a baby. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, today we are starting a new series on the book of Malachi called Remember, and it's all about God reminding his people who he is and what he calls them to. Today, just a heads up, this message is going to have a lot of detail. Uh, I want to make sure we're well-equipped to understand Malachi, and part of that is getting us on the same page with a few concepts in history. So if you have a phone or a notebook, this might be one to jot some things down in case there are new concepts or terms you're unfamiliar with or want to dive deeper into. Malachi is a minor prophet found at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Can I get a quick show of hands? Who here has ever heard a sermon on the book of Malachi? Like three. That's great. That means that you have no idea if what I'm saying is true. No, that's, that's not it. Um, when I did a little straw poll over the week, I got one out of 15, so that's about right. Uh, to be honest, in my few decades in church, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Malachi. Uh, I've heard him mentioned in a few capacities. Uh, The first, and probably the most popular, is there's a reference to tithing in Malachi 3. So I've heard a lot of pastors use that one. The second is references to the Messiah, or a new Elijah, uh, towards redemption and God's kingdom, which will be taking place a few hundred years after this book, and we see those come to pass. The third is that this is the last book of the Old Testament, and after this, there's a seeming silence from God for about 400 years until it's broken in the book of Luke. By the way, that 400 years of silence is even more fascinating after you've read Malachi and read the accusations made by the people of Israel toward God about God seeming to be not very present, Uh, and then 400 years of nothing. 
Aside from that, Malachi, like most of the minor prophets, often gets glossed over. And there's a number of reasons for that. First, most of the minor prophets can be a little bit tough to read. Not for length, mind you. Malachi is only four chapters long, and they're not even very big. Uh, Malachi 4 only has six verses. No, a lot of the minor prophets tend to be tough reads because of the state of the world they were written in. The people of the Israel at the time know that God is powerful. They've heard the stories of what he's done, but it seems like a distant memory, something their grandparents talked about, but they haven't directly experienced. And at the same time, they keep experiencing hardship, and a lot of it. And all of that hardship is in direct juxtaposition to what God has promised. So to better understand the book of Malachi, and indeed most of the minor prophets, I want to help us understand a few big theological concepts that led us here. And I think a good analogy for those theological concepts is to talk about children's books and the progression of literature as we get older. There's a fascinating story about some of the works of a man named Theodore Seuss Geisel, or as you may know him, Dr. Seuss, and it goes like this. In the 1940s and 1950s, it was generally agreed upon that kids really couldn't start learning to read until ages five or six. It was something that they thought trying to teach kids to read too early could either stunt their development or they just couldn't understand it because their brain wasn't developed enough. Dr. Seuss disagreed and wrote his early reader's books. These included classics like One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, and Hop on Pop. The idea behind these was to use a rhyming scheme along with pictures that directly matched the words on the page in order to get kids reading early, and it worked. Kids started being able to put together basic reading from as early as two to three years old with his work. And developmentally, Dr. Seuss makes a lot more sense for a young reader than, say, a book like Hunger Games. I have no issue with Hunger Games as a series, but giving that book to a five-year-old may be a little advanced for them. It may be a hard read. And introducing the idea of a dystopian future run by a capitalistic government willing to sacrifice children for sport may be a little advanced at a young age. No, instead, after a child moves on from Dr. Seuss, we enter the realm of middle grade novels. Things like Boxcar Children, Magic Tree House, Animorphs, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew. These tend to be a harder read, but are still reasonably easy, and they start to introduce new concepts and direction for growing minds. After middle grade, we move into the realm of YA, or young adult, where we start doing things like The Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, Percy Jackson, and a million other series. Although oftentimes, we make those decisions based upon the child and how they're developing, both intellectually and with maturity. And as kids become more and more mature, we start to open up more and more mature topics, until eventually we get to things like Lord of the Rings, Hunger Games, and countless others. And you'll notice this trend, the books keep getting thicker and thicker, which means if we take this to its logical conclusion, that once you hit adulthood and are a fully formed and mature adult, I assume we all graduate to something like this guy up here, War and Peace, clocking in at almost 600,000 words, that would be about 2,400 pages if it was released as a mass market paperback. It's one of the biggest books I could find. The point is that when it comes to reading and developing, we rarely start at the end. No, we actually start simple and progress as we're able. We make sure that there are foundational things in place so that we can understand the next level. And even with that, we often go back to what we love, with something like 55% of YA books being purchased by adults who just enjoy the genre. I like the idea of progressing as we read, because I think it'll help us to better understand what some of the people in Malachi are going through at this point in Scripture, as we talk about two important theological concepts. The first is called progressive revelation, and the second is covenant. Progressive revelation 
at its simplest form, states that the truth God gave to humanity was not all given at once, but was instead revealed more and more as time went on. Paul, in the book of Romans, says it like this. Romans 16, 25 through 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. In other words, God slowly unfurled his plan for humanity until eventually it was made known to all in its fullness that all might know the God that loves them and the plans he has for them. Starting with Adam and Eve, God began to reveal his grand plan. And through the ages of prophets, priests, and kings, he continued to show more and more of that plan until we meet the person of Jesus who brings about some of the fulfillment. Progressive revelation doesn't make parts of the Bible less true or less important in the same way that I would never deign to say that Dr. Seuss or the Magic Treehouse were somehow less important books. No, they're vital for understanding future books. They're a foundation we continue to build on. If you want to really understand Jesus, you should read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It would teach you a ton about laws, sacrifices, commandments, and what Jesus was doing when he came. It'll teach you a lot about some of the things he did and the power of what he did. If you want to understand the Pharisees and religious leaders in Jesus' time and how they could possibly get to where they are, you should read Jeremiah and Malachi. You should read about a priesthood attempting to maintain holiness while in captivity to a country that has a different standard of holiness. You should read about people who are trying to be set apart but keep missing the mark and God's heavy words against those priests because of it. It'll inform you quite a bit about how those Pharisees got to where they were in Jesus' time. Those foundational works help us get a better understanding of the revelations that God continued to unfold. And to be clear where this analogy starts to break down a little is that nobody would say that the earliest parts of Scripture are easier to read than the latter. No, the earlier parts can be a lot harder to read and understand However, they are so foundational and vital for truly understanding the latter parts of Scripture well. Now, one of the ways that God showed this progressive revelation was through the use of covenant relationships through Scripture. It's our second big theological term, covenant relationships or just covenant. These covenant relationships are going to be vital for understanding the book of Malachi because when we get into Malachi, you're going to start to see some accusations coming from the people to God about the nature of covenant some things they are not happy with. Now, a covenant is simply a relationship between multiple parties who come together to make a contract, agree on promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities. All parties work with the end goal in mind and to the betterment of all the parties involved. A good example that's usually used for this is marriage. Uh, While marriage is a legal contract here, um, we treat it as a covenant where both parties enter together with the end in mind. They focus on working together for the betterment of each other and the relationship, and it's not just about checking a box. See, in a covenant, each party has things they bring to the relationship, but ultimately it isn't just back and forth give and take. It's about working together for a common purpose. And this is different from, say, a contract or a business agreement. For example, like let's say Apple decides to go into a contract with a company to make microprocessors. And they promise to give X dollars for X number of microprocessors at the end of the year. And when they get to the end of the year, they see how everyone did fulfilling the contract. And if Apple either didn't give enough money or that company didn't give enough microprocessors, they might dissolve the contract. There might be lawsuits. They might renegotiate. They might look for different partners. 
In a covenant, things are different. Although each party brings something to the table, a covenant isn't broken just by a party's inability to deliver. It isn't just give and take. It's about relationships, longevity, and shared purpose. And as we look through Scripture, we take a look at a number of relationships between God and His people in the Bible, and we recognize them as covenants. These are promises God makes to individuals, and through them, an entire nation or the world. People go back and forth on how many there are, but five of the big ones are the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and the New Covenant. For a quick description, the Noahic Covenant was made with Noah. After God sent the flood and Noah and his family are together, God comes to them and says, hey, here is what I want from you. Um, Here's what I want from you as a nation. Here are some things that I would like you to do and accomplish. And at the same time, um, I will be your God. Uh, I will not send a flood again. And this contract is, this covenant is unconditional. I'm with you regardless. After this, we have the Abrahamic covenant. This is a covenant with a man named Abraham. And God came to Abraham and said, here are some things I want you to do and your people to do to be set apart. Um, I want you to be different. I want you to show that you're different. And in return, I will bless you. I'll bless your descendants until they're more numerous than the sand on the beach, and through them, I will bless the entire world. We have the Mosaic Covenant. After Moses frees his people from Egypt, he meets with God on Mount Sinai. He comes down with the tablet, the Ten Commandments. God promises to make Israel into a holy kingdom of priests that will spread his blessing and glory. God instructs Israel to obey all the laws given at Mount Sinai and promises to bring blessings if they follow his commands and curses if they ignore them. Israel's allegiance will be outwardly reflected in the way they live, keeping the commands and in particular observing the weekly Sabbath. In other words, God looked at these people and said, I want you to look different. I want all of the nations around you to look at this nation of Israel and say, what's special about them why do they do things different? I want people to look at you and see that you're set apart. And after this, we have the Davidic covenant. People of Israel wanted a king. And so after they elected their own and it didn't work out, God chose David. And David defeated his enemies and he consecrated land to the Lord. And so God met with David and God loved David. He promised to make David's name great and raise up a descendant from his line whose throne and kingdom would last forever, a view of the Messiah, a view of an eternal kingdom, a view of salvation. The rule was David and his descendants must remain faithful to God and follow his covenantal laws. Yet even when David and his children failed, which they did, and fell away, which they did, God continued to keep his end of the covenant. And that right there is going to be so important as we go into Malachi. Who upholds the covenant? When one party doesn't fulfill their end, that doesn't mean the covenant's broken. Now, you see, regardless, God's covenant is unconditional. He offers for his relationship with the people of Israel to continue regardless of where they're at. Or as we say it here at Discovery, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you're welcome. The covenant God created can't be broken by us regardless of what we do. No, God keeps that covenant with us and offers us a way. And all of that brings us to Malachi. 
The book of Malachi was written around the first half of the fifth century. The people of Israel left Babylonian captivity about a hundred years prior, and when they did, they were so excited. There were all these promises God had made, and they were ready to go. They rebuilt the temple. They had the promises from the prophets Haggai and Zechariah of a glorious messianic kingdom. They were living under the Davidic covenant. God had been with them and promised a a Messiah, a Savior, a King. They had already gone through the hard times. They'd been enslaved in Egypt. They'd experienced split kingdom as people went one way and then another. They had corrupt kings, foreign acts of worship, profaning their holy ways. They'd been enslaved, put in captivity, attacked, beaten. But all the while, they had the promises of God. And then we find ourselves in Malachi 1. As the author of the Interpretations Commentary says it, the people of Israel live in a small, impoverished province in the Persian Empire, and it sort of seems like the world is passing them by. There's nobody attacking them. There's nobody subjugating them. There's nobody persecuting them. They're just in the hardship of normal life. Locusts and droughts plague their crops, and existence is tough. They aren't seeing the promised blessings from heaven. They've heard of God's provision in the past, but they aren't seeing it now. Uh, They've heard about the Messiah. They've heard about glory. They've heard about all these promises. Um, They're not seeing God. The book of Malachi is split into six arguments or disputes, and today we're going to take a look at the first two. The first comes from Malachi 1, 2 through 5, and it's a dispute about the nature of God's covenant with his people. Up to this point, Israel's covenant with God looked like this. God's people were to trust and obey their God. They were to have faith that God was moving, had a plan and a purpose, and that he had them where they were for a reason. They were to be set apart and living differently than those around them in accordance with what God had in store for them. They were to worship God. For God's part, he had promised to set them apart, to adopt them and nurture them. He promised to look over them and make them a holy nation that would be blessed and would in turn bless the world. All that being said, if you have a Bible, we're going to take a look at Malachi 1, 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever." Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Um, The first two chapters of Malachi, God is really angry. You're going to see that when you read it. Um, God recalls back to his promise to the people of Israel, a promise he he points back to with brothers Jacob and Esau. Of the two, God chose to give his blessing to Jacob rather than Esau and took Jacob and his lineage as his chosen people. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He became the father of the nation we're currently looking at. Now, if we can pause here, this is fascinating. In my Bible, the story of Jacob and Esau takes place on page 24, and we are currently on page 870, and that conflict is still ongoing and still defining the relationship of God's people with him. You see, just like Jacob went on to become the father of a nation, so did Esau. He became the father of a nation called Edom. And as the people of Israel were taken into Babylonian captivity, the people of Edom were some of those who helped plot it. And while the Israelites were in captivity, the people of Edom took some of their land, the same land the people of Israel were promised by God. And they see this as an offense. 
God promised them a blessing, but then the heart of that blessing seemed like it was given back to Esau's descendants. The people declare that God isn't living up to his end of the covenant. After God's explanation and promises for how he is still in their midst and working because he loves them, God goes from being on the defensive and brings his issues, namely when it comes to temple sacrifice and worship. And this is where Malachi starts to get interesting. We're going to take a look at Malachi 1, 6 through 14, and we'll be looking at it in the message translation because they capture it in such a fun and powerful way. This is God looking at worship, and I believe you may be able to find some parallels with our modern day. Malachi 1, 6 through 14. Isn't it true that a son honors his father and a worker his master? So if I'm your father, where's the honor? If I'm your master, where's the respect? The God of angel armies is calling you on the carpet. You priests despise me. You say, not so. How do we despise you? By your shoddy, sloppy, defiling worship. You ask, what do you mean defiling? What's defiling about it? When you say the altar of God is not important anymore, worship of God is no longer a priority, that's defiling. When you offer worthless animals for sacrifices and worship, animals you're trying to get rid of, blind, sick, and crippled animals, isn't that defiling? Try a trick like that with your banker or your senator. How far do you think it'll get you? The God of angel armies asks you. Get on your knees and pray that I will be gracious to you. You priests have gotten everyone in trouble. With this kind of conduct, do you think I'll pay attention to you? The God of angel armies asks you. Why doesn't one of you just shut the temple doors and lock them? Then none of you can get in and play at religion with this silly, empty-headed worship. I'm not pleased. The God of angel armies is not pleased. And I don't want any more of this so-called worship. I'm honored over all the world. There are people who know how to worship me all over the world who honor me by bringing their best to me. They're saying it everywhere. God is greater, this God of angel armies. All except you. Instead of honoring me, you profane me. You profane me when you say worship is not important, and what we bring to worship is of no account, and when you say, I'm bored, this doesn't do anything for me. You act so superior, sticking your noses in the air, act superior to me, God of the angel armies, and when you do offer something to me, it's a hand-me-down, or broken, or useless. Do you think I'm going to accept it? This is God speaking to you. A curse on the person who makes a big show of doing anything great for me. An expensive sacrifice, say, and then at the last minute brings in something puny and worthless. I'm a great king, God of angel armies, honored far and wide, and I'll not put up with it. God doesn't sound happy. He brings this argument. The way the people of Israel approach God is a defilement. They come with sacrifices, tithes, and offerings, but they bring the worst versions they can. They bring sacrifices but they make sure it's the lame or blind ones. They show up to worship, but, don't, but complain and don't approach it seriously. They come before God, but only halfway, and God asks them, would you do this to your banker or your senator? Would you do it to your government? Would you bring half-truths, half-offerings, and half of yourself to any other area of your life? And if you did, how would that be received? How am I, God, worth less than those people? Well, if you're new here, I want you to know that we don't sacrifice animals, or at least not that I'm aware of, but we do worship. In fact, worship is the way that we approach God every day. And this passage begs the question, when you worship God, what does that look like? Do you do it all the way? Do you do it partway thinking about how to get it done? 
And worship in the context I'm talking about isn't just the singing here on Sunday, although that's part of it. It's the way you approach God with your life. Do you do it half-heartedly because maybe you haven't gotten much from God recently, or do you give it your all? And what does that even look like? In light of our series, there's a theme you're going to hear coming up quite a bit. Remember. When we're told to remember things, that tends to take on a mental component. Remember, think about, process, imagine are some of the words that come to mind when we're told to remember. When God tells his people to remember, he's telling them to do more than just memorize, think about, or process. He's telling them to live. In Exodus, when God called his people to remember the Sabbath and keep him holy, he wasn't saying, think about the Sabbath, process it, figure out how it works into your life. He was saying, do it. Make it a part of what you do. He was saying to live it. In the same way here, God isn't calling his people just to think about worship or think about the promises he made to Jacob. God is telling his people to live a life of worship, to live a life recognizing the power and control that God has. God is telling them to live in worship as if God is valuable to them, which begs the question, what do we do with that? Well, the thing is, God isn't done. And in the next chapter, he goes after the priests. These are the men who have been running the temple, accepting the tithes and offerings, which are substandard, and it turns out they're complicit too. When you read Malachi 2, 1 through 10, you get this sense that the priests are sort of rolling their eyes at God's commands. We won't read it all, but to paraphrase it, God points to their lives and says, you are called to teach the truth. People look to you for guidance. You are the messenger of God, and you've corrupted the covenant. And in Malachi 2.10, from the message translation, he says this. Don't we all come from one father? Aren't we all created by the same God? So why can't we get along? Why do we desecrate the covenant of our ancestors that bind us together? And this section of scripture, just like the last one, begins to take on a pretty powerful meaning when you look not just at the context of Malachi and these people living under this Davidic covenant, but in the context of what God is going to do next. You see, right here, God is chastising the priests. He's chastising them for the way they approach him, and through that, how others approach him. They're called to teach the truth. They're called to point people to him. They're his messengers. But a few hundred years from this point, one of Jesus' followers is going to write his own book. Peter, through his scribe Mark, wrote a letter to the five churches in Asia Minor. He has something to say about the priestly class, and we can find it in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As Jesus came and fulfilled the covenant, there were no longer priests and followers. It wasn't just the authoritative word of the pastor from stage. No, Peter called us to be a priesthood of believers. And to put that in the context of Malachi 2, that means that all of us in here who call ourselves followers of Christ, um, we're called to teach the truth. People look to us for guidance. We are the messengers of God, and our spiritual acts of worship matter. The way people approach or choose not to approach God is oftentimes connected to our influence. We are a holy priesthood 
And everyone in this room who calls themselves a follower of Christ are God's hand and feet. And the way we approach Him and the way we show Him matters. And that's the message of Malachi 1 in the first part of Malachi 2. It's pretty heavy. It's not simple at all. But it's a great reflection of this idea of covenant. And if you take nothing else away from today's message, if you've slept through the whole thing, I want you to hear this part in particular. God's people broke their part of the covenant agreement so many times, so many times. It's all throughout the pages of Scripture. Yet God never broke His part. Malachi 1 and 2 could at best be described as God chastising His people and at worst full-on yelling and berating, yet He never walks away. Because no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, God's covenant is unconditional. And with the person of Jesus, God paves the way for that covenant to not just be for a people group or a nation, but for individuals. God loves you no matter what you've done, and God calls you into a priesthood of believers to be his messenger, his truth, and help reflect God to those around you. I'm going to invite the band up to the stage, uh, and as they do, I have a few things I want to encourage you to try this week. Uh, First, we're going to be going through the book of Malachi over the next two weeks, and I promise it gets a little bit happier after these two chapters. In fact, there's some really exciting stuff coming up, so I would encourage everyone in here this week to read through the book of Malachi if you never have or if it's been a while. It's four chapters long. If you're a fast reader, it's 10 minutes. If you're slow in taking your time, it's 30 minutes. And if you don't have time for that, it's on Spotify and YouTube. Listen on your way to work. Armed, hopefully, with a better understanding of the culture and time, it's so fun to get an idea for what God was calling his people to and how that's going to deepen your understanding of who God is. Second, I don't know if you noticed, but God often addresses his people corporately and not individually. Part of that is because we're intended to do this together. If you have questions, if you want to discuss, if you want to bounce things off other, that's how we do church. Uh, It was never intended to be a place that you show up on a Sunday, go grab lunch, and then show up the next Sunday. Uh, It was intended to be a place where you do life with others. Uh, Toward that end, we have a page on our website, uh, dc2.me slash community, uh, and it's a place, different places to connect here at Discovery. Uh, We have a women's Bible study coming up the week of the 19th. We have men's groups, women's groups, singles groups, 50s plus groups, moms groups, and life groups for those who are single, married, dating, with kids, without kids, and includes any stage of life. And if you think I missed your stage of life, it was just an omission. It, It exists. These are groups that get together, do life together, and work through some of these things together. If you're not plugged into community here, I'd highly encourage you to check it out. With all that being said, I'd love to pray for us. Hey God, it's Jake. I think for most people, myself included, uh, there are many books in the Bible uh, that just don't seem to line up with what I know about you. And as I read Malachi 1 and 2, uh, there are just things in there that make me uncomfortable. But God, understanding the buildup, understanding what you're building to, uh, understanding this idea of covenant and then your son, uh, really actually makes Malachi pretty beautiful. God, I thank you for everyone in this room. I thank you for everyone online. I thank you for everyone still in pajamas. Um, God, I pray that we could be a group that wrestles through these passages together and not just on our own, um, that we could be a place for community. Uh, God, thank you. Amen.